Okay, I'm not doing a preach this morning. Hooray, says everybody. I just want to do some thoughts. And um, it's funny how God speaks to us through different things. And um, often when I'm in the car, God speaks to me about things that are on my mind. And um, I want to play you a story this morning. And I just want you to listen to the story and enjoy it. I don't want you to sit there thinking, how is this relevant? Okay, because you'll spoil it if you do that. It's probably not relevant. So just listen to the story and enjoy it for what it is, okay? I am a great fan of Rich Crompton and the William books. And uh, if you know the story of William, William Brown is one of the outlaws. And the outlaws are William, Ginger, Henry, and Douglas. And they get up to all sorts of trouble in the village where they live. They are always in trouble. They're naughty boys. They're always in trouble. They're 10 and 11 years old. And the William stories are about all the adventures they get into, all the trouble they get into, how miraculously they come out of it smelling of roses at the end. And one of the protagonists in the book is a girl called Violet Elizabeth Bott, who can squeam and squeam and squeam till she makes herself sick, and quite often does. And this story is when William meets Violet Elizabeth Bott for the first time. The Sweet Little Girl in White. The hall stood empty most of the year. This Easter it was taken by a Mr and Mrs Bott with their daughter, Violet Elizabeth. William's mother met Mrs Bott at the vicar's. Oh, I do hope you'll come and see me, dear, said Mrs Bott. Oh, and didn't someone say you had a little boy? Do bring him. I want Violet Elizabeth to get to know some nice little children. Mrs Brown hesitated. She was aware that none of her acquaintances would have described William as a nice little child. But Mrs. Bart took Mrs. Brown's speechlessness for consent. William, pale and proud and dressed in his best suit, went with his mother to the hall the next week. An overdressed Mrs. Bart held out over-ringed hands. So you've brought dear little Boise, she began. William greeted her coldly and politely. Then Violet Elizabeth entered. Violet Elizabeth's fair hair was not naturally curly, but as the result of great daily labour on the part of her nurse, it stood up in a halo of curls round her small head. Violet Elizabeth's small pink and white face shone with cleanliness. Violet Elizabeth was dressed in a white, lace-trimmed dress. William gazed at this engaging apparition in horror. "'Good afternoon,' said Violet Elizabeth primly. Good afternoon, said William in a hollow voice. Take the little boysy into the garden, Violet Elizabeth, said her mother, and play with him nicely. William, with the air of a hero bound to his execution, accompanied Violet Elizabeth into the garden. Mrs Brown's eyes followed them anxiously. What's your name? said Violet Elizabeth. William Brown, he said distantly. How old are you? Eleven. My name's Violet Elizabeth. William received the information in silence. I'm six. He made no comment. Now you must play with me. I don't play little girls' games, he said scathingly. 
but Violet Elizabeth did not appear to be scathed. Don't you know any little girls, she said pityingly. I'll teach you a little girls' game. I don't want to, said William. I don't like them. I don't like little girls' games. I don't want to know them. Violet Elizabeth gazed at him, open-mouthed. Don't you like little girls, she said. I don't know anything about them. I don't want to. Don't you like me? Her blue eyes filled slowly with tears. Her lips quivered. I like you. Don't you like me? William stared at her in horror. You, you do like me, don't you? William was silent. A large, shining tear welled over and trickled down the small, pink cheek. You're making me cry, sobbed Violet Elizabeth. You are. You're making me cry because you won't say you like me. I, 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 I do like you, said William desperately. Honest, I do, I do. Don't cry, I do like you, honest. A smile broke through the tear-stained face. Oh, I'm so glad. You like all little girls, don't you? You do, don't you? William, pirate and red Indian, woman-hater and girl-despiser, looked round wildly for escape and found none. You do like all little girls, don't you? She persisted with a quavering lip. You do, don't you? It was a nightmare to William. They were standing in full view of the drawing-room window. Oh, yes, I, I, I do, he said hastily. I do, honest I do. She smiled again, radiantly through her tears. You wish you were the little girl, don't you? Um, uh, yes, uh, honest I do, said the unhappy William. Kiss me, she said, raising her glowing face. William was broken. He brushed her cheek with his. That's not a kiss, said Violet Elizabeth. Um, it's my kind of kiss, said William. All right. Now, let's play fairies. I'll show you how. Never had the comradeship of his own sex seemed sweeter to William than it did the next day when he set off whistling carelessly, jumble at his heels, to meet Ginger and Douglas across the fields. What'll we do this morning, said Ginger. It was sunny. It was holiday time. They had each other and a dog. Boyhood could not wish for more. The whole world lay before them. Let's go trespassing, said William. Where, inquired Douglas. Hall Woods and take Jumble. Well, that old keeper said he'd tell our fathers if he caught us in there again, said Ginger. Let him, said William, with a daredevil air. The nightmare memories of yesterday were growing faint. They entered the woods, William leading. He swaggered along the path. Yesterday was a dream. It must have been. He'd never played at fairies with a girl. He, William, the pirate king, the robber chief. William! He turned, his proud smile frozen in horror. A small figure was flying along the path behind them with elaborate curls and very short, lacy, bunchy skirts. William, darling, I saw you from the nursery window coming along the road and I escaped. Oh, William, darling, play with me again, do. It was so nice yesterday. William glared at her, speechless. Go away, he said at last. We aren't playing girls' games. We don't like girls, said Ginger contemptuously. William does, she said indignantly. He said he did. He said he liked all little girls. He said he wished he was a little girl. He kissed me and played fair with, with me. A glorious blush of a rich and dark red overspread William's countenance. Oh, he said, but it was not convincing. You did, said Violet Elizabeth, and somehow that was convincing. Ginger and Douglas looked at William rather coldly. Even Jumble seemed to look slightly ashamed of him. 
Well, come along, said Ginger. We can't stop here all day talking to a girl. But I want to come with you, said Violet Elizabeth. I want to play with you. We're going to play boys' games. You wouldn't like it, said Douglas. I like boys' games, pleaded Violet Elizabeth, and her blue eyes filled with tears. Please let me come. No, all right, all right, said William. We can't stop you coming. Don't take any notice of us. She'll soon get tired of it. And they set off. In a low-lying part of the wood was a bog. It was quite possible to skirt this bog by walking round it on the higher ground, but William and his friends never did this. Violet Elizabeth was trotting gaily behind the gallant band. They did not turn round or look at her, but they couldn't help seeing her out of the corners of their eyes. She plunged into the bog with a squeal of delight. Oh, isn't it lovely? Doesn't it feel nice? All squiffy between your toes. Oh, isn't it lovely? I like boys' games. They could not help looking at her when they emerged. As fairy-like as ever above, her feet were covered with black mud up to above her socks. William and his band remembered their manly dignity and strode on. She followed with short, dancing steps. Soon they came to a clear space in the wood occupied chiefly by giant blackberry bushes laden with fat, ripe berries. They fell upon the bushes. Violet Elizabeth also fell upon the bushes. Gradually, her pink and white face became obscured beneath a thick covering of blackberry juice stain. Her hands were dark red. The brambles tore at her curled hair and drew it into that state of straightness for which nature had meant it. And still she ate. Oh, isn't it fun? I like boys' games. They gazed at her with horrified respect, then set off again through the wood. Under a large tree, William stopped. Now we'll be Red Indians, he said, and go hunting. I'll be Braveheart, same as usual. And what shall I be? said the torn and stained and wild-headed apparition that had been Violet Elizabeth. Well, said William, I suppose she'd better be a squaw. A squaw? said Violet Elizabeth joyfully. What sort of noise does it make? It's an Indian lady and it doesn't make any sort of noise, said Ginger crushingly. Now we're going out hunting and you stay and cook the dinner. "'said Violet Elizabeth obligingly. "'Kiss me goodbye.' "'Ginger stared at her in horror. "'She held up her small face. "'Please, Ginger.' "'Blushing to his ears, "'Ginger just brushed her cheek with his. "'William gave a derisive snort. "'His self-respect had returned. "'That isn't the end of the story, but... <clears throat> If we go on, we'll run out of time. What happens in the last part of the story is that they are in the woods belonging to the hall and uh, the gamekeepers catch them. And as William had already said, if we get caught, they're going to take us to uh, tell our fathers and we're going to be in trouble. What happens is they take them to see Mr. Bott, who is the owner of the hall, and he doesn't recognise his daughter because of the state she's in. She's by now covered completely head to toe in mud. Her hair is straight. Her dress is completely ruined. And so he, they go in and they are in big trouble. But at that moment, Mrs. Bott flies into the room missing her daughter who has gone, gone out to play without telling her. So what happens is that Mr. Bot sends the outlaws out to find Violet Elizabeth, who is already with them. So they go out, find Violet Elizabeth, bring her back, 
And the whole story finishes with them getting a 10-shilling note each. If you're not sure what that is, that's 50p in today's money. But in those days, 10 shillings was an awful lot of money. And so the whole thing revolves around, and finally, everything works out perfectly. I think we should do that tape at the beginning of each marriage course, actually, because I think that would be really good. But I'll probably be in trouble for saying that. <clears throat> but why did I play that? Okay. The reason is this. William was in a situation where he couldn't get out of it. And he knew that he had to do what he had to do because his mother was trying to impress Mrs. Bott in the hall. It was an important meeting for his mother. And so he had to go through with all her demands. And as I was listening to it, it suddenly struck me that actually the motivation was guilt. Because he couldn't get out of the situation, because if he had, he would have felt guilty towards his mother. And as I began to think about that, I began to think how much of our motivation is based on guilt. Now, as I began to think about that, I began to think about New Year's resolutions. And interestingly, as I looked it up and did some research, we've already talked about New Year's resolutions this morning and the fact that they don't work, which is true. They don't work. The top 10 most common New Year's resolutions are also the top 10 most commonly broken New Year's resolutions. So they don't work. Dave's already said, what was this statistic you said? Yeah, half are broken within 11 days. Now, one of the reasons, if you look on the internet, you can look this up for yourself, one of the reasons is that New Year's resolutions are prompted by guilt. And when you use a negative emotion to try and change something, it doesn't work. And the funny thing is, looking up on the internet yesterday, I started to look into this a bit more. And it, it's madness. There, there is so much on the internet about how to keep your New Year's resolutions going because they don't work. So it's, it's crazy. And I just wrote down a few. This is the one I like the most. Sleep your way to New Year's resolution success. Now that sounds good to me. I like that one. Four ways to make your New Year's resolution stick in 2015. To me, this sounds like hard work. Identify your readiness to change. Believe you can do it. Think constructively about setbacks and build mental strength. Okay? Sorted. This one is for Justin. Download the New Year's resolution worksheet. And I wanted to download it, but I couldn't get it to download, which was really unfortunate. But that's just up Justin's street. Download the worksheet. Put your aims on it. Get the app. Exactly. Right, and this, this is a classic. New Year's resolutions already wavering? Question mark. 
Okay, now that you have to remember, what is the date today? Fourth? This was written on the 3rd of January. I mean, the resolution is only made on the 1st of January. By the 3rd, it's saying, are your New Year's resolutions already, wa- already wavering? Top 10 tips to try keep them going through, ta- through 2015. The number one tip is this. Make only one resolution. That's the number one tip. Make only one resolution. Your chances of success are greater when you channel your energy into changing just one aspect of your behavior. It's probably true. And as I began to think about it, the the statistics are crazy. Gym membership is the highest in January every year. New memberships. Get this. 67% never go to the gym. So you take out a new membership, you never go. 67% never go. 13% give up after three months. Another 10% give up after six months. How much does that leave? 10%. 10% carry it on. It doesn't work. So that's the world's kind of view of New Year's resolutions. We've got to try and change yourself, make ourselves better. Prompted by guilt, I've eaten too much, therefore I must go on a diet. I've eaten too much, I'm getting lazy, I'm watching too much television, I must do more exercise, hence the gym membership and so forth. The question for us as Christians is, what is our motivation? Because it is not guilt. It shouldn't be guilt. If it is, we've got to change our thinking. Because it's not guilt. Because God doesn't work like that. I was reading Christianity magazine. I don't read it normally. I've got a three-month free subscription. So uh, that's why I've got it. So uh, this, this was just a quote that I read this morning. Like so many well-intentioned resolutions... Daily, he's talking about reading your Bible. Daily can soon turn into when I have time or when I get round to it. And then guilt sets in. The theory is willing, but the practice is weak. And we have to be careful as Christians that guilt is not something that prompts us to action. You see... God's way of doing things is completely different from the world's. And that's why God says, I want to transform your thinking. I want to change the way you think about your spiritual lives. You see, what God says is, this is love. Not that you first loved me, but that I first loved you. That's where God starts from. Everything is based in his love. So no matter what mess you've got yourself into, no matter what you've done in your life, and however you come to God, full of sin and in a mess of whatever you've done, God says, I love you. I love you in your mess. What God doesn't say is, right, lose a bit of weight, stop smoking, get yourself fit, go on a nice diet, then come to me and you'll be acceptable. Hallelujah. God takes us wherever we are, whatever mess we're in, whatever we've done. He says, that's where I love you. 
You didn't come to me and say, oh God, I love you. Oh, and God says, all right, I'll love you. It's the wrong way around. I love you. And I loved you before you loved me. This is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us. Hallelujah. He accepts us just as we are. We deserved less, but he gave us more. And in 1 John chapter 4, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, it's a bit of a long word, bit of a mouthful. What does it actually mean? What it means is a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath and turns it to favor. Jesus is the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath and turns it to favor. I love that word. (laughs) What a fantastic word to use. Turning wrath into love through sacrifice. (laughs) We deserve God's wrath. We deserve what we should have got. But Jesus came and sacrificed himself that he would turn that wrath into love through his sacrifice. We went to see the uh, Moses film yesterday, Gods and Kings, at the cinema. Um, I'm not going to say anything about it because if you want to go and see it, it will spoil it for you. But... The one bit that I found very powerful was where Moses says to them, you need to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of your houses. And one of the men turned to him and said, what if you're wrong? We've wasted all those lambs. And he turned, Moses turns around and he says something along the lines of, if I'm right, we will forever bless those lambs. That's why we're here today. That's why we worship. Because we forever Bless the Lamb who died for us and gave us mercy when we deserved God's wrath. It was a very powerful moment and it really spoke to me. And God comes through Jesus and his blood is on the doorposts and the lintel of your heart if you're saved this morning. And that is so powerful. So powerful an image. That's why we worship Jesus. You know, it was good to be together this morning, wasn't it? It 
just puts the lie to to the uh, the thought that you don't need church. I can I can do church on my own at home. You know that is just such a lie of the enemy. It really is. We need to recognise that. It's just a lie of the enemy. It is good when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. That song we sang, One Spirit. As we come today, we haven't met for a few weeks, as we come today, we are of one spirit. God has come and put his spirit inside us. We're of one spirit, and as we sing, our spirit worships Jesus. We worship the Lamb of God who took the sin on his shoulders. We worship Jesus who turned wrath into love through sacrifice. Don't start reading your Bible on the 1st of January because you feel guilty. That's not what it's about. Start reading your Bible because you want to fall in love with Jesus again. Because it is all about love. It's about relationship with Jesus. That's what this is about. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you obey me. If you love me. Why did Jesus say to Peter, do you love me? Three times. Because that's what it's about. It's about love. It's about relationship. Don't make resolutions based on guilt. They're based on your heart. They're based on your relationship with God. I love you, Lord, but I want to love you more. That's a great resolution. I love you, Lord, and my heart's grown a bit cold. Warm me up again. That's a good resolution. Why? Because I want my relationship with you to be closer. That is what God wants. The first commandment, love the God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. All is an all-encompassing word. There are times when we don't feel like that, aren't there? There are times where we We struggle with God and he feels a long way away. That remains the same. Love him with all your heart. And it's hard sometimes. But that's what he wants. Now I don't want to give you a great big list of things that you need to do. Because it's not like that. But if you pray one prayer. I think this is a good one. And this the Pope at Christmas, I don't very often agree with the Pope. I don't really listen to what he says very often. But actually, this Christmas, he spoke to all his staff in the Vatican. And he gave them ten pointers for their lives for the next year. And I suppose, in one sense, you could look at it as though it was New Year's resolutions or whatever. But the first one on the list, I thought was really good. And it's this. Take care of your spiritual life, your relationship with God, because this is the backbone of everything we do and everything we are. 
And I think that should be top of the list. And I think that's it, actually. If that's the only thing we pray at the beginning of this year, then that's enough. Take care of your spiritual life, your relationship with God, because it's the backbone of everything we do and everything we are. Don't do things out of guilt. Do them out of love. That's all I want to say, actually.